Hello. Welcome to the Brown Note Films of the Year. You're with Julian on Radio Northern Beaches on 88.7, 90.3 FM and all over the internet in various forms and guises. Every year on this show, I do at least three shows. One, my albums of the year, which was last week, my top 25 albums of the year, and that was a lot of fun to put together for YouTube. Absolutely excruciating. I'm going to pay an intern. Took an entire day. And this week is the same. It's um, top... The one difference with the films list is I spend a significant amount of time bagging all of the films that I've hated. And unlike albums where it was a a mid-year, a mid-strength album year, same for tracks really, musically it wasn't that amazing a year. It's been an absolute banner year for movies and that means good and bad have excelled. Um, Obviously we had the cultural event that was Barbenheimer dominate the middle of the year and re-energize cinema and and the other thing is I said that I think there's a bit of a con going on with comic book superhero movies because they've been regularly losing a hundred million dollars per film for around two years now and they're not stopping making them so I have to assume that the people involved in green lighting all of these uh, very lackluster films which are failing because one oversaturation two characters no one cares about but mostly because they're all rubbish films so many of the films in that main 20 odd run of the mcu universe were really strong films and that hasn't happened every time one comes out it's it's a fail and no one wants to see them but they keep making them, so I have to assume that the people making them and greenlighting them are still getting paid fortunes for doing so. And it's other people like investors that are, who would greenlight these films now? Why would you throw money at stuff like Shazam 2 or Blue Beetle? Even the Marvels one that came out, which they could have probably got away with a lot better um, if they had focused on the A-list Marvel character instead of Muddy in the Waters, but also again a film that got really poor reviews. Um, so I've been saying the um, end game for, for MCU was the end game for the comic book superhero movie world, but they won't stop making them. Um, but uh, Barbenheimer showed, ironically, given Barbie is the most corporate product you could get, but they showed that original intellectual property could thrive in cinema. And not only did Barbie thrive, but Oppenheimer, I think, is like the second biggest film of the year or third biggest film of the year, just shy of a billion dollars for an R-rated three-hour biopic, an amazing achievement. Um, so it's shown, you know, we've had some big-name directors come out of the woodwork this year, Ridley Scott, uh, David Fincher, Martin Scorsese, um, and obviously Christopher Nolan. And Christopher Nolan really has hit the highest point of his career because this Christmas, the one children's toy that is flying off the shelves and no one can buy are the 4K Blu-ray releases of Oppenheimer. Like, they sell out as soon as anyone releases them, they're gone. And it kind of gives you, you know, it's kind of heartening. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break this up into chunks with music in between and not music that really relates to much other than it was featured throughout the year in this show. But I'll do chunks of five. I've got my top 15 best films of the year. 
and I'll probably do them in chunks of five. And when I reach each five point, I'll veer off. And the first thing I'm going to veer off into is five films that came out this year that I feel were a bit underrated and flew under the radar a lot. And then there's um, my favourite part of the film of the whole year, uh, my top ten worst films of the year. Which um, so the the time frame for these films is I I really don't like delving back into the year before. But is so often with these top 10 lists from movie people, they will watch films in festivals that haven't even come out and say they're in their top 10 films of the year. I don't go to movie festivals to see films that haven't come out in the cinema. I always moan. You would never do that with an album. You'd never say, I listened to this album at XYZ Festival and none of you have heard it. It's in my top 10 albums of the year. The other problem is, is that they release the... All of the awards contenders, or 60% of the awards contenders, are released pre the Oscar nominations, which happened at the start of January. So they're after everyone's lists anyway. So I am delving back slightly into the previous year, but not very much, and pretty much on films that would have come out on wide release around Christmas Day. So that was weeks after my lists last year. And in some cases, there's a film like Pearl is going to be mentioned at some point that did come out last year in some territories. It didn't even come out in the cinema in Australia until March. I think that's fair. They do these staggered releases sometimes with films. So without further ado, my top 15 films of the year will happen after this. <clears throat> Yo, it's Julian on the brown note. Let's get this show on the road. So I'm going to do probably 15 to 10 with maybe a track in between of my favourite films of the year. And number 15, one that almost made the underappreciated list, but I've included it in my films of the year, the much maligned Pope's Exorcist, which I thought was wonderful. From the initial, this is going to be a remake of The Exorcist, it's going to be yet another terrible remake of The Exorcist, it became very clear that they were completely on board with sending absolutely everything up. There was no funnier sight this year than Russell Crowe riding around on his moped with great intent, and it was deliberately funny. Um, it was an, a film that was completely on the pulse of how ridiculous it was and lent heavily into it. It was still better than the remakes of The Exorcist they've tried or the remakes of The Omen they've tried by miles. Um, everyone's bagging Russell Crowe for having gone off the boil. It wasn't a big failure. It wasn't an expensive film and it still did pretty decent box office. But it was so much fun. It was really, really good. The whole exorcism angle and the supernatural angle was helmed as good as most horror films. But it had the impossibility of a wonderful... Russell Crowe at its centre, sending himself up, sending the genre up, and it was terrific fun at number 15. At number 14, and like a few of the films in this list, I haven't reviewed it on a specific review yet, The Creator, which is Gareth Edwards' new film, and he's got a really interesting slight filmography in that his major films were Godzilla, which I had much more uh, time for than most critics, and um, Rogue One, which I said was an instant classic when it came out, the Star Wars film. Um, he came back with the creator. Didn't get good reviews. <laughs> I think it was maligned unfairly in comparison with 
you know, compared to virtually any sci-fi that's come out, intellectual property, originality-wise. But if you like films like District 9 and Elysium, it is firmly in that dystopian, failing, crumbling society future. Um, much was made about it being about AI, which was a thing, but I don't think it lent as heavily into it being about AI as it did about American imperialism. So you've got a future where America maintains this trillion-dollar space station that hovers over their enemies and just destroys them and it roams the world and you've got new south asia which is a collection of southern asian nations who are friends with the ai and i couldn't help but think of parallels between these ai creatures and the workers of southern asia providing goods for the west there seemed to be a lot of overlap there and fertile ground um, John Washington I'm still not 100% sold on as an actor he's fine here uh, the writing isn't that great um, so I wouldn't blame him for anything but he does get a lot of lead act gigs where I'm not always blown away by, by his performance and I wonder how um, Gemma Chan it was good to see her and I wish they'd bumped her part up I really feel sorry for her for being the actually quite bad lead actor in um, the Eternals and definitely that would have knocked her career for six for a while but she is an incredible looking and here much better actor um, but they don't give her enough but the the selling point here is the production design it's there are few science fiction movies as beautiful as the creator the visual design on this is worth it alone it is stunning to look at um, so well worth watching the creator at number 14 and one more dungeons and dragons honor amongst thieves um chris pine michelle rodriguez at the film center when the film trusted itself to lean on their chemistry and comedy was magnificent and overall a terrific long-form story uh hugh grant popping up um lots of uh, really quite strong effects and as good like much better than say a film like uh, world of warcraft the warcraft movie that they did but in the same pocket just a lot more aware and some of the most laugh out loud comedy you'll see this year happily the audience seems to have caught on after it did okay at the box office and are clamoring for a sequel if they do i hope they lean into the what made this one so special so dungeons and dragons honor amongst thieves at 13 I'll play a track and come back. Uh, from a continuing the countdown at number 12 is a movie that has... That's very loud, aircon. It's really humid in here. Yesterday was our hottest day in Sydney in December in 40 years. Um, the film Air, which was perhaps a difficult sell given the history of the company Nike. I can't say Nike. I don't know why. But anyway, Nike. Um, it wasn't hard, was it? Um, given their history of poor industrial relations in South New Southern Asia, uh, it was a hard sell to make them the heroes of the film. But it was a really enjoyable story nonetheless. And it was the film with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Uh, both on fine form and a great role for Ben Affleck actually as the guy who worked for Nike when they were a no mark out of the boot car company uh, car boot company well actually they were a multi-million dollar company but they were not at the level of Adidas or Puma their rivals 
and they were trying to buy sportsmen to promote their trainers or sneakers. And he was the one that rejected the notion of using what money they had to buy some lightweights. Uh, and he, he went after Michael Jordan around 1983 and wanted to basically bet the house on Michael Jordan and do a few things that hadn't been done previously. And most notably, it ended up with the notion of an athlete not being paid a set flat fee for their image rights, but getting continual image rights and um, percentages of what was being sold afterwards. And hysterically, at the end of the movie, when they released the Air Jordan, the most popular shoe in world history, they talk about, well, we'll give him these rights because what's it going to cost us? $3 million a year. And in the first year, they sold $130 million and have done something like $40 billion in revenue. But it was a terrific film. It wasn't about Michael Jordan at all. It was about the internal workings of them trying to sign this athlete in a way that had never happened before and in a way that changed sport to the effect that um, the character played by Matt Damon was in court only a few years ago to promote the rights of college athletes in America to receive residual rights for their image being used by sports companies who couldn't just pay them a one-off fee. Um, but a really fun story, uh, a really fun drama uh, wasn't heavy. All of the casts were excellent. Um, Jason Bateman shows up. Lots and lots of interesting people in it. And uh, yeah, a terrific story at number 12. And finishing the first five, Extraction 2 at 11. I love the first film. Chris Hemsworth launching his own John Wick adjacent sort of franchise. Um, pretty much everything they did in the first film was 5% better this time around, including the side characters. Everything was upped, and I moaned about the first film having probably three times more action than I would want. Instead of reducing the action and that making it better, they made the action better. So there were some really good long-form action sequences here where it was more compelling rather than just body after body dropping. Um, a really good one. Chris Hemsworth was fantastic in it. Um, I think he's underappreciated, really, as an actor in the right role. And that's my first five, Extraction 2 at number 11. And you're with Julian on the brown note, counting down my top 15 best and top 10 worst films of the year, but a slight deviation for a batch of films which, when not great, were underappreciated this year. The movie Plane that came out, I think maybe only on Netflix at the start of the year, um, Gerald Butler who I've got a lot of time for. He is the most likely to have slid into the Jason Statham, Liam Neeson, I'm going to be an action franchise star. He's done some really good films lately. Greenland, I thought, was fantastic. And Plane, I thought, was really good. Um, you got two very good plane crash sequences for the price of one, combined with a Rambo-esque jungle expedition and the whole um, islands off the coast of the Philippines in the middle of nowhere where Islamist rule uh, location was um, a masterstroke as well, made it much more interesting. I thought it was a fantastic film. The Flash, can, it's, it doesn't deserve to be put in the same bracket as Shazam 2 or Ant-Man, Quantumania. Terrible films. The Flash wasn't a terrible film. It was caught up in a lot of controversy over its star, Ezra Miller. It had numerous flaws 
half of the visual uh, representation was amazing half of it was really bad vfx but it had a lot going on and sustains itself over two and a half hours and michael keaton's batman in it was fantastic a really good performance and character from him definitely the high point of the film some things didn't work but overall i actually quite liked it i think i gave it a six and a half out of ten it doesn't deserve to be called as bad as blue beetle or which got inexplicable reviews um i thought it was okay much better than okay was transformers rise of the beasts uh the latest transformer film and one without michael bay initially seemed like a massive failure given that it hadn't followed on from bumblebee and didn't have Haley steinfeld in it bumblebee was an amazingly good film and Haley steinfeld was the glue that held the entire project together and they abandoned it all for a more traditional rote transformer film but they did a really good job visually it was spectacular and half the film was set around kuzco and machu picchu watching those big beasts fighting on machu picchu was pretty decent i'm i actually really enjoyed it meg 2 the trench ben wheatley is like he went from being one of the most uh, challenging art house directors out there to producing rubbish like re the remake of rebecca um and he seemed to have gone off the boil a lot and coming back with i thought me uh, the meg one was really bad um but this time around i thought it had enough the first half was quite moody and the underwater world was pretty well realized and then they lent heavily into the gonzo second half of the film and i thought it was good i thought it was good and finally the kill room which was um worth it just for uma thurman who gets virtually no roles of this caliber seemingly um in her in the best lead role i've seen her in in ages really funny um and samuel jackson backing her up meant that virtually the whole film you were either with an excellent Samuel Jackson or an excellent Uma Thurman. Um, art world film, and I thought it was um, even limited in its scope. It was often really, really funny, um, and Uma was magnificent. So those five films, I think, are worthy of a look back on. I'd also add Puss in Boots too, which was magnificent, but probably came out before the start of the year. We'll be back with my top 10 films of the year after Roman, you're with Julian on the brown note counting down my best and worst films of the year into the top 10 and the most controversial entry in the whole list killers of the flower moon and i don't know that it should even be this high in the list is at number 10 it's many people's film of the year i would say with a touch of emperor's new clothes and the fact that its subject matter is native america um, and it's such an interesting uh, concept that I think it's thrown a lot of people. I would say this. For me, the Goodfellas equals The Irishman and Casino equals Killers of the Flower Moon. The screenplays of Goodfellas and The Irishman completely modulated throughout their runtime. And The Irishman earned its three and a half hour runtime things constantly moved and changed all of the characters and their relationships with each other the visual representation the moods the tone everything continually evolved in casino i felt like the first half hour was repeated throughout and the wolf of wall street as well i felt like there was half a brilliant half hour that was just it just stayed in that same pocket for me killers of the flower moon 
That first half hour is the pocket the entire movie stays in. It doesn't earn three and a half hour runtime. It's two hours of film before the FBI make an appearance. And to be honest, I would have cut that in half. You would have had an hour. You would have developed the characters as much as they're developed. You would have told the story in the same way. It is very, very repetitive. I am also not 100% sold on, in Scorsese films, side characters, you look at any character in Goodfellas, and indeed the Irishman, the side characters were epic and rememberable and just fantastic performances. I felt they were a bit rote here. DiCaprio was excellent, and um, the lady whose name I've forgotten, uh, Lily, I can't remember her full name, is the sh probably the shoe-in for Best Actress. And it's the best role that Robert De Niro has had in a long time, going back even much more so than The Irishman, I felt, because it suited him a lot more. He didn't have to play a youngster. Um, but his role is fantastic, a great character, great performance from him. Some of the side characters aren't really that good. I didn't think Jesse Plemons was very good as the FBI guy. But it's just this repetition. It's like the mood and the tone and what the characters are to each other and what's going on is the same throughout the whole movie. And it doesn't need to be that long. So it's still a lot to appreciate about Killers of the Flower Moon. But if it does sweep the boards at you know, film of the year, it's going to be an Emperor's New Clothes scenario. So that's my 10th best film of the year. Another slight misfire at number nine, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning was the film that was destroyed at the box office by the Barbenheimer, Barbenheimer effect, uh, which came out one week after it was on release. And I have sung the praises of Mission Impossible 4, 5, and 6. And this one was probably the least good because, like the Fast franchise, an air of repetition had started to creep in in what was going on. Uh, and even in the casting... Um, so we had like a replacement for Rebecca Ferguson's character, which is a little bit too eerily close. And the fact that they decided to split it into two, Fallout, the previous film, had just the most mind-blowing final half hour. This is denied that, and I felt that given the state-of-the-art nature of the Mission Impossible franchise, having um, half the film on an out-of-control train was treading ground by so many other thrillers um still fantastic stuff i'm desperate to see the next film but probably the least good at number nine at number eight barbie um a film that was cleverer than you expected it to be and was beautifully helmed and actually really well written um i thought that it showed the commonality of a lot of the clashes between men and women in the modern world really well um the character i thought margot robbie was the one person in the whole film that didn't get the credit she deserved she was luminescent as barbie and more so i thought than ryan gosling's ken who got all the plaudits for some reason um but overall i thought the the way that it showed how men become like ken um was really well done and quite clever and the writing was good it was patchy at times. It did drag at times. It wasn't quite as effervescent as it could have been, but it was still one of the movies of the year. I'll come back. 
You're with Julian on the Brown Note, counting down my best and worst films of the year, and we're going to get just outside the top five with this burst and then go into the worst ones. Infinity Pool, and number seven, David Cronenberg's son, Brandon Cronenberg's making quite a name for himself with this story about, and it's quite common at the moment, where it shows a society where rich people can do horrible things with impunity. In this instance, they can commit any crime they want because they are holidaying on an island where they're allowed to pay a cost and transfer their body into a doppelganger. Or, sorry, let the doppelganger take... They create a doppelganger of you, and if you pay the fee, the doppelganger will be executed, and the doppelganger thinks it's you, and you can carry on and just commit murder and do whatever you want. So there's this band of rich people that appear on this island every year to do that. Thrown into the mix is Alexander Skarsgård, who has yet to find an awards-worthy performance, but is doing the right thing by continually choosing the most interesting projects. Last year, he was in my second favourite film of the year, I think, The Northman, and now he's back with this one. The overwhelming star of this show, and the overwhelming star of world cinema at the moment. In fact, it's a battle. Mia Goth, uh, I said after watching this film, she is this generation's Bridget Bardot, but a better actor with wider range. Um, she is absolutely magnetically incredible. No one does disdain or horror the way she does. And she's in a fight, I think, with Anya Taylor-Joy for the most interesting films of the recent era and all of them adjacent to being horror movies. So we had The Menu from uh, Anya Taylor-Joy last year was one of my films of the year. And Mia Goth in this is just magnif magnificent. Uh, visually, it's often got some really trippy effects and button-pushing stuff going on. And yeah, I didn't find fault with it. It was, um, in a way, like Ben Wheatley's film The Kill List, one of the most devastating films of the century. It was in that pocket at times, which I really liked, and it didn't quite get to classic status, but adjacent enough to it at number seven, Infinity Pool. At number six, by a country mile, not only the best, but the only great MCU film post-Endgame, Guardians of the Galaxy 3. There was an awful lot going on here and an awful lot that didn't quite match the previous films, particularly the camaraderie between the characters had got a bit more serious. It was a more adult film, but no one expected the backstory of Rocket to be by far the most upsetting element in any comic book superhero film that's ever been on wide release. Touching on, like the Holocaust, human experiments, animal laboratories. It was unbelievably upsetting, devastating stuff, made all the worse by the fact that Rocket's friends greeted their horrific, pathetic existence with such guileless optimism. I'd not seen anything like that. In a, It was sh quite shocking and probably quite adult stuff. Overall, it was a very strong film. It over-egged itself. It didn't need to quite go as far as it did in some directions, which were less compelling than those elements. But the um, tragic backstory of Rocket elevated him immediately to absolute top-tier MCU character. And it also gave Chris Pratt's character more depth uh, as well. 
and I thought that um, it was a very interesting film and by so far a margin the only really great post-endgame MCU film. At number six, I'm going to come back with my first batch of the worst films of the year. You're with Julian counting down my top 15 best films of the year and in a banner year for both good and bad, my top 10 worst films in two batches at number 10 in my worst films of the year. I can't turn this thing off. There we go. Fast X. Um, I was a big fan of Fast and the Furious. Um, it really hit its stride with Fast Five. It's been a slow burn law of diminishing returns since then, but six was good, seven was still good. The one where um, Paul Walker actually died during the filming of. Nothing wrong with those films, but by eight, the repetition had really crept in. And this is starting to happen a little bit with Mission Impossible. Particularly every single person that's a villain in one film is a hero in the next film. So I show good grief. And every, like every film seems to be about them getting a supercomputer that can control all of the world's computers. Which Dead Reckoning did, but Dead Reckoning actually made that interesting for once by making the supercomputer the villain itself. But once again, they're trying to get some computer system... They, they can't not cast every single character that's in all the other movies. The level of overcasting in this film was to its detriment. Uh, Van Diesel has either been really, really good in, the, in his role or really bad. And I think he was quite bad in this one. Um, the other main problem is the best thing the film has had going for them was the chemistry of that main cast. So this one decides to split them all up all over the world. So there aren't any people that are together much, which is like immediately hamstringing what was the best thing about the film. And it also makes all of the characters have a very narrow time frame to exist on the film because there's like 10 different groups of people you're focusing on. So I didn't like that setup. Jason Momoa was really good as a villain. Um, the other problem is like they're reckoning they split it into two. So you don't get any resolution at all. Um, overall, I thought it was the weakest since four, but I would have enjoyed four more than this one. So a misfire at number 10 for Fast X at nine, Scream 6. Um, the biggest problem with... And now we're seeing that um, the stars of Scream 6 are embroiled in this massive controversy because they've sacked the lead actress from the next screen film for saying stuff like she thinks genocide's bad in relation to the Gaza conflict. And then that was followed by Jenny Ortega, who I thought was a standout in Scream 6, leaving as well, not specifying particularly why in that manner, but it's caused a big problem. If there was a problem with Scream 5, its predecessor, it really doubled down on that. We know about horror movie tropes and we're going to continually hit the viewer over the head with that fact. This film does that too, but then the characters behave worse than any characters I've seen in normal horror films. The stupidity level of what they do is off the charts, and the unbelievable, incredulous nature of what happens. Like, at the start, they're like the two main characters are embroiled in this mass murder event in America and just go about their day, you know, having dinner parties on campus. In, there's no cops in sight. It's, it's just it's so stupid and it's so grating how the characters behave i really didn't like it at number eight this year's emperor's new clothes in the cinema world unless it's killers of the flower moon spider-man across the spider-verse i thought was terrible 
I gave it three and a half out of 10. And if you think that's because I just don't get it or don't like it, I gave the original Spider-Verse film um, a nine out of 10, and it was one of my best films of the year. Interminably long, the first hour and a half of the film is ground zero Spider-Man stuff, like his parents don't know his Spider-Man, he's awkward around his crush. This is like day one Spider-Man stuff. And they actually start the story at like one hour, 45 minutes. You get half an hour story. And yet again, it's split off to the next movie. I couldn't stand it. I also found the visuals to be half amazing and half incredibly grating and headache inducing. It's like Michael Bay came on and edited this film. So sometimes it's really good to look at, but you get four times the amounts of edits that you should have. So you can't even pay attention because your head's pounding from watching it. So I really didn't like it. At number seven, a sad letdown, Cocaine Bear. Um, everything was on the table for it to be a cult classic, but it was just too boring and just not funny enough and not even worth watching. An even bigger letdown, the Christian Bale starring the pale blue eye, featuring not just an Edgar Allan Poe story, but the Edgar Allan Poe character. Everything was set up here for some you know, Victorian murder mystery melodrama, but it was all very badly acted. Um, not Bale, because um, he can't act badly, but everyone else in it was, particularly the Poe character, was pretty awful. And it was unbelievably silly, it was boring, and it was, um, I think I gave it a 3 out of 10. Um, I'll come back with the top 5 worst films of the year after Echo and the Bunnyman, for no apparent reason, The Killing. With Julian on the Brown Eye counting down my best and worst films of the year, but I didn't say what my criteria for my worst films of the year is and it is important but ironically this year it is less important because many of the films i'm reviewing got pretty bad reviews anyway but it's not just i've seen a lot of indie films that are one out of ten i don't include those movies they're not interesting enough there has to be certain criteria such as it's a director who i've previously worshipped giving me a film that is a massive disappointment so I've had previous uh, worst films of the year, June, because I've loved Dennis Villeneuve's films and I felt that was awful. And the other main criteria is when a film that I feel is awful gets actually quite strong reviews. Um, June would be case in point. I gave Tenet my worst film of the year. La La Land was my worst film of the year because it won multiple Oscars and got wild critical acclaim when I absolutely hated it. I think it was my worst film of the decade. So there's criteria. Usually it's a major film. Often it will be below expectations. Often the reviews will be quite good uh, when I've seen it and thought it was absolutely shockingly bad. Um, and that doesn't apply as much as it normally does in this list. But there's, it's usually major films that I felt are a massive letdown because of who's involved or they've got an inexplicable complaint, uh, a claim like The Five Bloods, I think was my worst film one year, got amazing 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. I absolutely detested it. I thought it was awful. So that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, number five in my worst, continuing my top 10 worst films of the year, uh, we had Fast X at 10, Scream 6 at 9, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse at 8, definitely falling into the category of massively overhyped and over-reviewed films. Cocaine Bear at 7, Pale Blue Eye at 6, and at number five, Shazam! Fury of the Gods, one of the emblematic post-Endgame superhero films in that it's a character no one really cares about, 
and the final project was product was absolutely terrible. Uh, this time around, they lean far too heavy into Thor 4 comedy and make that comedy very broad. And it, no, I think nothing turns an audience off more in this universe of superhero comic book movies as when they make the comedic side of things far too broad and heavy. And they really did that with the Shazam League character. On top of that, virtually everyone in it was terrible. And also the, the, the story and the visual effects felt like um, Xena Warrior Princess. It was like a TV standard thing. It was rubbish. Even worse was Ant-Man 3, uh, Quantumania. And I was never a fan of Ant-Man 1 and 2. I found them to be, uh, I think this one's called Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, something like that. I, 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 I like Paul Rudd. I just didn't like the character of Ant-Man. He fell into that comedic bracket a bit too heavy. But they were nowhere near as bad as Quantumania. For some reason, they turned off the comedy of Paul Rudd and made him into this really self-serious but bad performance. And it didn't suit, it didn't bring anything to the table at all. Um, another major point of this film which really, really hamstrung it was all of the cast felt different. They all felt like they were acting in a different version of this movie. There was no real connection. Michelle Pfeiffer was great. Uh, it's good to see Michael Douglas in films, but they all felt like they were in a different movie. Um, the, the Kang character was one of the better villains post-Endgame. Uh, he was really good, but overall, it was a dire film. And one I was happy to see end, a rubbish film at number four, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. And number three, a definite one where the director has previously made films that I've loved and turned up with something that should have been so special and is the most inexplicable cult favourite since the awful Midsummer uh, a few years back, and that is Babylon. Damien Chazelle is the most fascinating director out there, given I have loved two of his films and hated two of them. So Whiplash was a masterpiece, and First Man was a masterpiece, and a very underappreciated film. La La Land was, I think, my number one worst film of the entire decade. I hated every single element. And I hated Babylon in, ev in completely different ways. It was appalling writing. It didn't sustain interest over its runtime. The acting was very bad. Um, and I'm not blaming Margot Robbie for her bad performance here. I'm blaming the writers for giving her five minutes of a character to spread over three hours. Nothing changes throughout this film for her or any of the other the the, the other lead guy the um, Latino uh, filmmaker wannabe is actually quite bad The only person that escapes this void is Brad Pitt whose whose character and performance is perfectly fine But if you watch that rather try hard opening of the Bacchanalian party that they have You have seen the best part of that film in the opening 20 minutes it doesn't change or go into any new interesting territory from that point on. Uh, the writing is cringe-inducingly poor. It's mind-blowingly boring. Um, I was really struggling by one hour, 50 minutes in, knowing I had more than an hour to go. It doesn't earn it. Uh, it doesn't leave you with anything to think about afterwards. And it doesn't offer any insight into the Hollywood system. It is a much lesser brother to films like Day of the Locust or Barton Fink which what run rings around it on their examination of, you know, this toxic Hollywood from a bygone era. 
this doesn't. It is so superficial. It's awful. And the fact that it's being a cult film now has put it at number three in my worst films of the year. And at number one and two, both these films were given zero out of ten. I don't give zero out of ten all the time. Four films that aggravate me so much. And at number two, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Everyone loves Harrison Ford. Everyone loves Indy. And who would know when the obnoxiously loud in, uh, Temple of Doom came out, the second indie film, that it would end up being a much-loved third-worst indie film. I thought the very least they could do here is clear the unbelievably low bar Crystal Skull set, the previous indie film, which was an absolutely terrible film. Like watching a computer game, it was unbelievably horrible. But this was actually worse because at least Crystal Skull was never boring. This is continually boring, but as stupid as Crystal Skull. And if you think the aliens are bad at the end of Crystal Skull, wait until you get... Get a load of the end of Dial of Destiny. It's soporific, it's dull, and the female lead character, even though she's been brilliant in lots of things, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, uh, I can't remember the British comedic actress, she's been brilliant in lots of things she's done, particularly her signature TV show, which I can't remember, but she's awful here. Really great in character, and with her and the kid, it's like they're trying to take the kid from Temple of Doom and just remake that character, and then they're trying to take the female from the female heroine from um, the Raiders of the Lost Ark and simply make her this character. Everything about it is put together from pieces of other Indiana Jones films. Nothing works. Nothing is. There's virtually no compelling sequence action-wise, um, which is shocking. And the story is as dull as dishwater. And the resolution and final half hour, unbelievably silly and stupid and dull. And Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is my second worst film of the year, beaten by a film that did come out last year, but um, a, the main part of its release was this year. And it is so bad that I wanted to acknowledge it as my worst film of the year so it could slide into that honourable pantheon. And that is Avatar 2, Way of the Water. Now, I hated Avatar 1, uh, which means I haven't liked a James Cameron film since Titanic. He has got the worst fan base in movies, worse even than Christopher Nolan's Tenet-loving fan base, who will say anything the guy does is genius. Avatar 2 was so much worse than Avatar 1. In fact, it was a remake of Avatar 1, as the story is virtually the same. Um, the, like the, the overall machinations of what happens with the Earth people coming to the planet to try and steal resources and then the, the fight back and rebellion is the same as the first film. There's no reason for it to be. The writing is horrendous. The dialogue is cringe-inducingly bad. It's like 90s cowabunga dudes, teenage slang. The sexualization of the blue meanies in it, uh, particularly the female ones, I found to be deeply disturbing. Uh, and I could understand on that basis why it's been a hit with 12-year-old boys. Um, unlike the other hit with 12-year-old boys, the excellent Super Mario film, um, this is turgid. It's got half an hour of story spread, possibly over, I think, three and a half hours. It's unbelievably difficult to get through. I found the visuals to be horrifically garish. It's not in a visually fascinating film at all. It looks like, a, like an Apple Mac 4K screensaver of a beach. 
it's so garishly colored and the animation of the the blue meanie characters has is incredibly flat they've got no emotion on their face they're all interchangeable to the extent i didn't know which actor was what and gave up trying the voice acting compare it to something like puss in boots it's probably the worst flattest most unemotional voice cast in movie history the the voice acting is incredibly dull and the dialogue incredibly stupid um it's unbearably long has no story and it just repeats the first film and just drags on for three and a half hours it is a horrible film and why anyone would want more of these it's now like the the second or first most successful film in history like the first one was and yet it's truly abysmal it's not just bad it's incredibly bad um i didn't like the way it looked i thought the voice cast was awful the representation of the characters reminded me of a 7:30 garish am tv kids movie made on a computer and everything about it sucked so my worst film of the year is avatar 2 way of the water you're with julian on the brown note and now the unpleasantness of the 10 worst films of the year continuing my 10, 15 best and the top five at number five and four both films about hitmen <coughs> which shows you what a boy's list this really is at number five the new david fincher film was not what i expected uh i expected something like day of the jackal i expected a very dour straight dark exploration into the mind of a hitman and i didn't get that and i was a bit annoyed at first and i was also annoyed that i got such a rote revenge story like the movie payback like point blank like any of those films where a protagonist is hard done by at the start and then works his way up a criminal enterprise offing everyone along the way it's been done a million times yet for some reason i found this film to be utterly compelling the most surprising element was that it was actually really quite funny uh michael fassbender hasn't been in a lot in the last few years and went off and i think away from movies like i don't know if he was affected by the the bad response to the final two x-men movies but has returned here <coughs> with perfect casting and david fincher is sometimes perhaps more than any of his adjacent directors in the american sphere has relied on writing to get him over the line some of his films have been actually very bad or he's tackled rote subjects that really like panic room would just didn't bring anything to the table but for some reason i found this to be utterly compelling michael fassbender deserves an oscar nod here because of the comedic elements to the film that he leans into his priceless responses to things going wrong are extremely amusing uh the i i, I thought the the sound mixing on it was kind of annoying because not only do you get nine inch nails trent Reznor, and atticus finch uh david finch's award-winning go-to people for an incredible score you get the music of the smiths throughout the film about 13 smith songs they just turn the volume levels up and down a bit too much it got quite annoying but everything else i thought production values here was superb i thought scene on scene there were fantastic action sequences tilda swinton was wonderful uh, a lot of the side characters were really strong in it um you fassbenders on screen every single shot um there were some really good action sequences in it and i, I just found it compelling 
I don't know what was so compelling about it, but I watched it a few times in a row because it was just so much unexpected fun. So my fifth best film of the year, The Killer at Four, John Wick Four, arguably the pinnacle of these this incredible franchise which I've raved about from start to finish. The only one that I was slightly down on was Two, which I felt um, just wasn't as interesting as the other films and doubled down on body counts too much. Much, and I wish the body counts had been lower, but much like, um, what was the other film I had in this list? Um, Extraction 2. Instead of cutting down on the body count, they made the body count more interesting. There are several sequences in a row which are amongst the best action-killing sequences you'll ever see anywhere outside of Hong Kong or even inside of Hong Kong. It earned its runtime. It was three hours long, and it got an hour and a half in, and I thought, how can it possibly get to the end? Um, without being incredibly boring and then I was suddenly an hour and a half later and um, that whole Paris sequence is, is like four of the best John Wick sequences in a row I thought paring down the story to be so simplistic was a masterstroke I thought making uh, the ramifications for what John Wick did the cause of his friend's downfall was was a really strong element and John Wick's performance Keanu Reeves' performance as John Wick has benefited by him actually doing less uh, as the films progressed. The production design was stunning. The French electro house blaring through was amazing. Uh, some of the side characters were fantastic, and some of the the like the sequence on the steps didn't rely on big budget effects, but was just amazing. Sisyphus. Every time Keanu Reeves rolled down those steps, I couldn't stop laughing. It was just like, no, not again. And I thought the villain uh, was another Skarsgård, um, and I didn't like him as the clown in it, but I thought his character was really good here. I thought underappreciated. Some people found him grating, but I actually really liked him. So absolutely everything about this one was um, top tier, and I thought John Wick 4 was fantastic. And I'll play a... Oh, shall I get into the... I'll do number three, and then I'll do a gap between the top two. So number three is a film that got a staggered release, which was Pearl. It was on best film list for many last year, and I reviewed it earlier in the year, and then it came out in the cinema in Australia, which is um, bizarre. Like, it was released staggered over an entire year, very much an Australian film this year. And I thought, um, again, the crowning of Mia Goth... She was absolutely magnificent in Infinity Pool and she was magnificent in Pearl. I'm trying to bring up some details. So I thought the film X actually wasn't as good as it was made out, directed by T. West, who directs Pearl. It was um, lauded by many people as a terrific uh, horror film, but I found it was um, a good film, but a bit rote and a bit ordinary and not as, you know, sort of bringing something interestingly new to the table the the one thing it brought to the table that was amazing was Mia Goth from Infinity Pool and um, Pearl I was expecting to be in the same mold it wasn't one of the finest portrayals of a psychopath or sociopath this side of either taxi driver or psycho um, she is absolutely magnificent I thought the film set it up really interestingly as a um, a period piece, a day glow period piece about a young farm girl dreaming of Hollywood and becoming a star and leaving her brutal post-European uh, poverty farm existence in America 
behind and she says she deserves it she feels it in her bones that she deserves it and then around sort of like near the halfway stage she has this dinner with her mother and her mother starts dropping these very weird comments such as you can't be seen this much and you're sitting there going why the scene with the mother who is awards worthy as well is one for the ages as the storm's crackling outside and Mia Goth is just sort of starting to look more and more like she's not the person we've grown to love and we have. From then on, there are the whole film is just like I think four sequences. Each one is a masterclass. Um, the sequence with her boyfriend, the sequence with her best friend, her audition. Oh God. Every scene is magnificent. I gave it nine and a half out of ten on release. I loved this film. Everyone screamed that Mia Goff did not get an Oscar nomination for this film. It will still go down as one of the great performances of the modern era, but it's also an amazing masterpiece. Pearl at number three, and I'll come back with the top two. After Sun's Signature and Golden Air, God, I've played. You're with Julian on the brown note into my top two films of the year. At number two, the most surprising film of the year for me... Bo is Afraid, it didn't get very good reviews. A lot of people found it very, very unwatchable and jarring and odd and strange, all of which is incredibly true. And the fact that it was Ari Aster's third film really threw me. The, the first film that he made is one of the defining films of the century, given how prominent horror is, given how prominent the movies of the A24 world are. Hereditary may claim to be the king of the whole lot, a landmark film and an amazing achievement. And then he came back with Midsummer, which may have been my, one of the worst films I've seen in the modern era. Um, I hated everything about it. I found it derivative and trite and boring and just made up of parts of other films. So I had no... When I saw the reviews of um, Bo is Afraid, I had no expectation that this three-hour-long film would be absolutely mind-blowing to me. Sure, it's flawed. Um, I don't really give major praise to... Uh, I don't really knock films that are this ambitious for flaws here and there because it tries so much harder and it's so much more successful in so many areas. Like, I think people say, you know, if a film's 10 out of 10, there's nothing wrong with it. I disagree. You can have a 7 out of 10 film that has no flaw but hasn't reached the heights of Bo is Afraid. Joaquin Phoenix is completely excellent in the role as always. I do wonder, though, whether he is... You know, these roles, the Joker, the Master, and Bo is Afraid, have a lot of elements of similarity in them, and also you are never really there. Um, so I'm wondering if he's getting a little bit typecast in these roles, but... Um, his story of him trying to find, trying to um, visit his mother who's sick and being continually waylaid on this nightmarish like version of Homer's The Odyssey, um, but all taking place on a small scale. So much of it is so interesting, particularly like the opening half an hour where he lives in this hellscape of a the most dangerous suburb in America, inner city suburb in America, where zombies roam the streets on drugs and everyone's chasing him. And you realize that these are creations in his head. He is a deeply disturbed man, deeply broken man, and he is creating this universe that we're watching. Uh, and, and it doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. 
Um, it's a long journey into the night film and um, not all of the sequences work as well as that opening like the second one where he's um, being sort of held de facto captive I thought went on too long but others like the bit where he meets up with the troop of actors in the woods and they put on a play and you dive into this incredible play uh, which becomes the film for a period and reflects on all these really interesting versions of the character and his life which isn't quite his life but nonetheless seems to trigger a lot of emotion in your understanding of him um, I thought the film was incredibly high on ambition and mostly succeeded and the whole notion of what happens in the end with his mother um, was <laughs> unexpected and shattering um, and it was just a fantastic piece of filmmaking from Ari Aster uh, an incredible film, back on track with hereditary standard filmmaking for me. A future cult classic, no doubt. Um, and my second favourite film of the year, the very difficult, challenging and wonderful Bo is Afraid. Um, you're with Julian on the brown note, counting down my top 10 films of the year. At number 10, the sadly underwhelming Killers of the Flower Moon. At 9, the slightly underwhelming Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. The Phenomenon Barbie at 8. Mia Goth, Queen Mia Goth with Infinity Port 7, the reigning champion of post-Endgame MCU films, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 at number 6, David Finch's The Killer at number 5, another Hitman movie, John Wick 4 at 4, the Mia Goth sensational performance and the wonderful film Pearl at 3, and Bo is Afraid, Ari Aster's incredible return to form, at number two at number one if this film loses to killers of the flower moon this film earns its three-hour runtime and is compelling from start to finish as a thriller killers of the flower moon is a thriller it is extremely dull at times it does not earn anything like any it's, it's nowhere near as good as this film and it's beating this film in a lot of the awards ceremonies it doesn't deserve to my number one film of the year is Oppenheimer and Oppenheimer which I've recently rewatched is a masterpiece it is compelling from start to finish it is Christopher Nolan's finest hour after after Christopher Nolan hit Inception I feel like he's tapered with each film he could do no wrong and after Inception The Dark Knight Rises I thought was excellent but perhaps not as good as The Dark Knight and I thought Interstellar, again, a film that many people love but is flawed. Dunkirk, I really admired him changing what he did, but I found the whole film to be less than satisfying. And all the way down to Tenet being my worst film of the year, which means that he has won both my worst film of the year and my best film of the year. Oppenheimer with the Barbie effect was a phenomenon. And the fact that it actually outlasted the Barbie effect completely to be still going strong at the box office six weeks later, everyone thought, you know, this three-hour R-rated biopic would possibly pull in $500 million because of the Barbie effect. It nearly did a billion dollars. And there was a lot of people trying to throw the feminist card. Oh, why are you praising Oppenheimer when it's done a billion dollars? Barbie's done a billion and a half dollars. The number one film of the year, by the way. Well, the simple fact of it is, is that Barbie is a mass appeal movie. It's a two-hour mass appeal movie. Oppenheimer is a three-hour R-rated biopic about a scientist. It is perhaps more impressive what it's done. But 
Whereas Killers of the Flower Moon is never that thrilling. Oppenheimer is a compelling screenplay from start to finish. It never bores. The side characters are superb. Robert Downey Jr. is um, a shoo-in for an Oscar nomination. He's got a great character, but just about everyone in it, like David Fincher, Christopher Nolan suffers in one area massively, and it's the one area that Quentin Tarantino, the bro, does brilliantly, writing female characters. Florence Pugh was excellent in her role, and she was a really interesting character. But overall, the female characters are still lackluster in Christopher Nolan films and in David Fincher films. Um, they don't seem to be able to write them very effectively. This is a bro world, obviously, of science. is a fascinating story. Um, there are difficult moral, morality questions. Cillian Murphy is, if he doesn't get best actor, he is on screen every single shot for three hours, and he is never less than a fascinating, complex human being, driven in multiple different directions, driven through great stress, the framing device of his trial for un-American activities in the 1950s is expertly used and the the downfall of Downey Jr.'s character is beautifully realized. Virtually everyone in it's fantastic. Um, it's a masterpiece of filmmaking that trades on some of the like mementos sort of metaphysical aspects um, but also you know the the everything that Nolan did in that first decade of his filmmaking seems to be utilized here to produce something that is much more artistic and fragmented than anything he's done since Memento. Um, and it's his most um, abstract film. But everything holds together and it is a thrilling movie to watch and re-watch. I'm really going to struggle re-watching Killers of the Flower Moon. I will watch in, uh, Oppenheimer over and over again. It's a masterpiece. It is the best film of the year. And if it gets killed off at the Oscars and the like because of what Killers of the Flower Moon is about, that would be a real shame because this wipes the floor with that. Oppenheimer is my number one film of the year. And to play us out, it's not quite a reissue as it wasn't issued before, but a 1963 performance by John Coltrane, one of my favourite albums of the year, Evenings at the Village Gate. And my favourite things will play us out. Adios next week my tracks of the year and that's it